Good morning. One of the more sordid parts of British history was in the 1940s after World War II, when many families who did not um, or who could not take care of their children because they were divorced or were single dropped off their children at care centers um, in, in England, uh, hoping to come back later and see their children. But what happened was when they came back later to see their children, their children weren't there. They were told that the children were spread out throughout England in adoptive homes, but they were being lied to. The fact is that 150,000 children were shipped 12,000 miles south to Australia. It was a conspiracy that went all the way up to the Queen. Take a look at this video. They're known as the Forgotten Australians, shipped from Britain in their thousands as children with a promise of a better life. But the reality was brutal. Many separated from their brothers and sisters. Some falsely told their parents back home were dead. Others physically abused. We come together today to offer our nation's apology. To say to you, the forgotten Australians, and those who were sent to our shores as children without their consent, that we are sorry. Sorry that as children you were taken from your families and placed in institutions where so often you were abused. Sorry for the physical suffering, the emotional starvation, and the cold absence of love, of tenderness, of care. Sorry for the tragedy, the absolute tragedy, of childhoods lost. The child migrants program sent poor children to Commonwealth countries. More than 150,000 British boys and girls were forced away on ships. Most were already in state care and had been abandoned by their parents. They were seen as good white stock to populate the former colonies. Many were made to work as child laborers. In the worst cases, the children were raped. Well, we were like little soldiers in orphanages. We gave up our childhoods. Leonie Sheedy was reunited with her brother after 40 years. I think the politicians get it, what we lost. You know, that we didn't get education, educated. We didn't get, we didn't lost contact with our families and our parents. This is my darling brother. He went to 10 orphanages. There is something special about finding someone or something that, that was lost. And this morning, we are going to look at three stories that Jesus said about the lost being found. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 15. This is one of the most famous passages of Scripture. The prodigal son has been preached multiple times and written a lot about. But we're going to look at these three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. In fact, Luke 15 has been called the gospel within the gospels. But first, we will look at the context of the stories. Why did Jesus tell these parables? Now, anytime we study scripture, we need to look at context. The scripture comes alive when you look at the context. And so, when we look at the context of why Jesus told this parable, Luke 15, verses 1, 2, and 3, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
then Jesus told them this parable. Why did Jesus tell them this parable? Because the teachers of the law, the people of the law, thought that Jesus was hanging out with the sinners. And you notice in your Bibles that the word sinners is in quotes. They were, Jesus was hanging out with sinners, and therefore they were annoyed at him. Now, there was a distinction between the people of the law and what they called the people of the land. They had no contact between the people of the law and the people of the land, and they were angry at Jesus. And that is why Jesus told these three stories. There are three stories in Luke chapter 15. There is a lost sheep, there is a lost coin, and there is a lost son. They are similar in the sense that there is something that's lost, then it's found, then there's rejoicing. There is something that's lost, then it's found, then there's rejoicing. But these three stories stress on something else uh, um, individually. The lost sheep uh, focuses more on the lostness of the sheep. The lost coin focuses more on the search for the lost. The lost son focuses more on the restoration of what was lost. First, let's look at the lost coin. Let me read for you verses 3 to 7. Sorry, the, um, uh, the lost sheep, verses 3 to 7. Then Jesus told them this parable, Luke chapter 15. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Sheep stray. That's what they do. Just like babies cry, that's what they do. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In that culture, the shepherd did not own the sheep. It was only a wealthy man that owned sheep. So the village in which these people were owned the sheep. And they would hire two or three shepherds to watch over the sheep. So every morning, two or three shepherds would come, take the flock of sheep that was owned by the village, take it to its pasture, feed it, and then bring it back at sundown. Now, since the shepherd did not own the sheep, if a sheep was lost, they had to bring back proof that an animal ate it. So they were very good at tracking sheep. If a sheep was lost, they would track it for miles until they were able to get the fleece of an eaten sheep. And they would bring it back home. So when the village sent forth uh, the flock of sheep with its two, three shepherds, and one sheep was lost, there would be this one shepherd that would go after this one sheep, and the remaining flock would be taken back to the village by the other two shepherds. And then they would tell the people at the, of the village that there's this one sheep that's lost and um, the other shepherd went to get him. And so the whole village knew that there was one lost sheep and that the shepherd was searching for it. And so as darkness fell, they would be able to see the silhouette of the shepherd coming back home with the sheep on his shoulders. That is a picture that Jesus is painting here. 
when they come back home, when the shepherd comes back home with the sheep, there is, re there is rejoicing in that village. The second parable that Jesus says is in verses 8 through 10. It's the lost coin. Let me read the passage for you. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This lady lost a silver drachma. Now, if I lost a dollar, I wouldn't go searching around and finding it and then celebrating afterward. You know, what's the big deal? But she lost the silver coin and she went all out searching for it. Now, the silver drachma is a coin that's worth about 18 cents um, and usually has the image of an owl or a tortoise on it. Why was it that this lady went searching after this one lost coin? I mean, why was this coin so important? The silver drachma was a day's wages. And so if, if you lost your day's wages, that's a big deal. And in that culture, many people were poor. There were only very few people that were rich. And the majority were very poor, and she could not afford to lose a silver drachma. There was a time in my past when I worked at Target um, as a cashier, and um, I pushed the red card down people's throats at that time. And um, <laughs> they were. Um, and, and there was a spare moment I had to pick up after the guests left the toilet. Um, but at that time, I was paid $7 an hour. And it was about two months after I joined Target that they started introducing Pizza Hut into Targets. And so as I was working there, packing the bags and whatnot, there would be the smell of pizza that would waft to my nostrils. But the problem was each pan pizza cost $3.50, and I was making only $7 an hour. If I, had, if I bought a pan pizza, that meant that I had to stand 30 more minutes on my feet, and so I did not buy it. For this lady that has a silver drachma, which is her day's uh, wages, it is a big deal. She doesn't want to lose it. The other reason why she went all out searching for it was because at that time, married woman had a headdress made with 10 silver coins connected to each other by a silver string. Now, when she came into a wedding, she brought what was called as a ketubah, or the dowry, and whatever she brought into the wedding was hers. Even though the marriage was dissolved, it belonged to her. She was obviously not from a very rich family. She obviously did not marry into a very rich family. She had only 10 silver coins. And so it probably took her years to accumulate the 10 silver coins. So losing one of the 10 silver coins is like losing a very expensive wedding band. And that is why she searched so hard. In an old house in Palestine, it is easy to lose something and difficult to find. The houses were small and dark, and there, was very, there were very few windows. Most houses usually had just one circular window, about 18 inches in diameter, and um, light hardly came through. 
and all she had was the light that came through the small window, and she had the small oil lamp um, with which to look, because it would be 1,800 years before um, Thomas Edison would invent the incandescent bulb. So she could not find it. It was hard to find something once you lost it. The other thing of concern is that the flooring at that time was made of one of two kinds. One kind of flooring was when uh, the floor was made of dry grass, dry rushes. So if you lost a coin in dry grass, it's like trying to look for a needle in a haystack. You're not going to find it. The other kind of flooring that were uh, in those houses was made of stone blocks lined up against each other. The problem was that in between these stone blocks, there were these crevices, and coins or pottery would get down in between the, uh, in the crevice, and it would be lost. In fact, in the book, um, Techniques of Archaeological Excavation, Philip Barker says that one of the ways in which they can date houses in archaeological studies is they go to the flooring, dismantle the flooring, and look in between the two stones of the floor, and they can find pottery and coins with which they can date the house. So when this lady lost a silver coin, it was either it got lost in the dried grass or it went down the crevice and, she, and the odds of her finding that coin was very, very little. So when she picks up that small lamp, oil lamp, and the broom and sweeps the floor, all she's waiting to hear is the tinkle of that coin. To a Jewish mind that hears the story, they can understand a God who will except a person who comes crawling back to him. But the idea that God is searching for somebody to save is alien to them. Let's look at the third story, the lost son. I said that the focus of the lost sheep was the lostness of the sheep. The focus on the lost coin was a search and the focus on the lost son is the restoration. We will go verse by verse, and you can follow in your Bibles. Luke 15, and I will read um, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. According to the Jewish law of inheritance, in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 17, it says, he must acknowledge the son as a firstborn by giving him a double share of all he has. The inheritance of the firstborn was twice as that of any other son. And the inheritance was given to the son at the death of the father. There were instances like when Abraham gave his inheritance to his son Isaac, that the, inher that the inheritance could be given while the father was still alive. But to ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is akin to asking that your father be dead. It was such a grievous crime that the father could have asked that the son be stoned by the community. And what does the father do? He honors his, his request. 
And the people hearing the story at that time would have thought that that father was a careless father to honor and pamper his son. The core idea behind every rebel is the wish that God were dead so that they would be free from the constraints of their conscience. And that is what the son wanted, so that he would be free of what the father had to say. Helmut Tillich was a German theologian who lived through the horrors of World War II. In a study of the temptations of Jesus entitled Between God and Satan, he said this, the wish to be free of God is the deepest yearning of man. It is greater than his yearning for God. So this guy takes all the money, and verse 13 says, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He was about 18 years old, unmarried, with no business sense. He had no business sense because he had an older brother who was taking care of the business. So here he goes, he gets a third of the family inheritance, and he squanders it. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now the word for hired himself translates as glued. He was glued. Means glue or cement. What does it mean? It means that this guy went to this owner asking for a job and the owner didn't give the job, but he was persistently annoying. And he glued himself to this other guy until he got the job. So the job that he got wasn't out of compassion. It was just to stop the annoying. And the job that he got was to, uh, to feed swine. The worst job that you could get. It was not only the worst job in Jewish culture, in cities, in countries around Israel. Um, they usually, the community did not have anything to do with people who took care of pigs. Not only was it the worst job, it was an illegal job. According to the Talmudic tractate Baba Kuma, it was an illegal job for a Jew to take care of pigs. And here he was, with all that money, lost it all, now he's doing what is illegal. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The word for pods or husks are from the carob pod. It's, it's, it's a carob pod from the carob tree. This fruit is about six to 10 inches in length, and it is a leguminous fruit, so you open it up and you scoop out the sweet, fleshy uh, um, part of the fruit and you eat it. The problem is that people did not eat this. It was for cattle and pigs. In fact, this is also, this um, fruit, the carob pod, is also called as a locust bean. It is also called as St. John's bread because when, um, when St. John the Baptist went in the desert, the Bible says that he ate locusts and wild honey. So it is thought that he ate honey and the carapods. There is a Jewish saying that says, when Israel starts eating from the carob tree, they become repentant. 
Why? Because nobody ate the carob pod. You were either in famine or at the lowest point of your life to eat this fruit, and this younger son was. At this point, the hearers of Jesus' story are waiting for the story to end because it started off pretty okay, and then it went bad, and now it's really bad, where this guy is with pigs and eating carapods. But in verse 17, it says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? It says that he came to his senses. This is an interesting expression. Because it makes it seem that a person who does not think of God is out of his senses. But he comes to his senses. The memory of his father comes to him while he is sitting with pigs and eating their food. Isn't it interesting that many times the only way that we will come back to God is if we hit failure after failure after failure. And that is when we will even consider God. And then he makes his vow in verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He will come back and confess. There is no way that he can earn forgiveness. Forgiveness is either free or not at all. You cannot earn it. And he says, I have sinned against heaven. He means I have sinned into heaven. It, he means that his sin is so tall that it goes from his head all the way up to heaven. In fact, there is a parallel verse that says in Ezra chapter 9 verse 6, He prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. He recognizes that his sin is so high, so tall, that it's reached all the way into heaven. And now he's starting to take responsibility for his actions. Repentance begins with an honest assessment of yourself. As long as we can justify, as long as we can excuse what we do, we can never repent. We've got to face the fact that we messed up. That's where repentance starts. And the Bible says he came to his senses. In verse 19 it says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He is still practicing his speech. You know how Oscar winners practice their speech before the thing happens? He was practicing his speech before he actually went. So I will say this, 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 and this, this, this. And in verse 19 he says, make me like one of your hired servants. What is a hired servant? There were two kinds of servants. There was the bond servant, and then there was the hired servant. The bond servant was a slave. You stayed with the house. Um, you got less money, but your food and your lodging was taken care of. The hired servant, on the other hand, was hired by the master every day, usually every day. So in Matthew chapter 20, you read the story where this master went out and looked for hired servants that he could hire. So they would be standing in the marketplace, they would be standing in the city square, waiting for some master to come and ask them to mow their lawn or fix their grass or run errands. In a society where 
a lot of people were poor, it was better to be a bond servant than a hired servant because your food and lodging was taken care of. Because a hired servant had no guarantee that next day's work would come. And the economy was hard. The housing market was down. <laughs> Gas was 3.5 drachmas. <laughs> the Dow Jones was down. So was the NASDAQ. And so this guy says, I don't want to be a bond servant. I want to be a hired servant, as low as he could possibly get. In one of the oldest rabbinical works, it is a commentary on numbers in Deuteronomy written by Sifre, edited by Friedman. There is a parable that is similar to this, except that the prodigal son is required to come back and work as a slave and work his way up into sonship. So as Jesus is telling the story, the Pharisees that are listening to the story love this part of the story. They hated the story so far. Here's the son dishonoring his father, and he goes away, and he wastes his possessions in a Gentile land, and he eats, uh, sits and eats with pigs, but now he is being made to work his way up, and the Pharisees love the story. So in verse 20 it says, he got up and went to his father. Not every sinner reaches this point of despondency. But the point of the story that Jesus is trying to make is that how the father will treat the worst sinner will show us how he will treat a bad sinner. How God treats the worst sinner shows us how he will treat a bad sinner. So if we are the worst sinner, there is hope for us. And now the restoration begins. In verse 20 it says, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. As the son is coming closer to home, he has no idea what to expect. He does not know how the father is going to react. His father could have had him stoned. His father could have had him banished. He has no idea how his elder son is going to react, his, his elder brother is going to react. Maybe his elder brother is going to kick him out of the house. He has no idea how the community is going to react. In fact, the moment he left, they would have held a funeral service for him because he dishonored his father and left. So as the son is coming back, all he knows that whatever happens now in his father's house is better off than when he was living with the pigs. In fact, what could have happened was the Kezaza ceremony done by the community. This is a ceremony for a person, a Jewish person, who went to a Gentile country and wasted his Jewish inheritance. For such a person, they would do the Kezaza ceremony where they would break a clay pot at the feet of the offender, signifying that he was completely and eternally cut off from that community. And that is what the son expects as he comes home. The Bible says the father saw him from afar. Jesus is trying to show that the father was looking for him. There must have been many nights when the father went to sleep thinking, maybe tonight's the night my son is going to come back. 
There were many days when he woke up and thought, maybe today is the day that my son is going to come back. And the Bible says he saw him from afar, and the Bible says that the father ran. In the Middle East, it is a humiliating thing for a man over the age of 40 to run. Kenneth Bailey was a man who lived in the Middle East for 40 years, and he wrote extensively about, um, about Middle Eastern culture. And he says that exposing legs are considered humiliating. So all the robes of the men reached all the way down to the ground. So what happens when you're going for a Sabbath service and you have this long robe and a bird gets underneath the robe? There is a law for that. And the law says if a bird gets underneath your robe, you sit down, wait for sundown so that it's dark outside, and when it's dark outside, you lift your robe and let the bird go. There were a couple instances when, when um, rabbis, they were walking among thorns and they lifted their robes to kind of avoid the thorns and they were called in to give an explanation. They had to give an explanation for the shame that they caused. And the rules on the Sabbath said that one foot should be on the ground at all times. You cannot take long strides. You cannot jump. You cannot run because you would expose your leg and that is shameful. In fact, in older Arabic Bibles, they did not translate the word that the father ran because it was too shameful. And so they translated it as the father hastened or the father hurried. No Eastern nobleman runs. Then why did this father run? And it was not just any running. The word, um, the word that's used there says racing as in a stadium. Why was a father racing as in a stadium to get to the sun? In fact, to race as in a stadium, he had to lift his robe and shame himself as he went to his son. Why did he do that? The reason he did that is because he knew that if the sun came to the village before he reached the sun, the Kezaza ceremony would happen and the sun would be cut off and banished from the community. And so to avoid the shame of the son, the father took the shame upon himself and was willing to be shamed and wanted to get to the son before the son reached the village. And that is why 2,000 years ago, this Palm Sunday, Jesus, Jesus went into Jerusalem to be humiliated so that we would not be. That is why in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the originator and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame. And in Joel chapter 2 verse 27 it says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. And he embraced him and kissed him. This is a point when the Pharisees completely lost their minds. It was an unbelievable turn to the story. This would never happen in Jewish culture. The son would be made to work his way up. He would not be even be, be allowed to meet his father. 
The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you notice that he does not complete his pre-prepared speech? He does not talk about being the hired servant. Because at that point, the father's love completely overshadowed the confession of the son. The father didn't let him finish. For where there is grace, there is no need for works. And the son was already reconciled in grace. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The best robe was called the stola. It was the upper robe. And it's actually translated, bring the robe the first. It was the best robe of the father. Not of the son. It was the best robe of the father. And here was a father giving him his best robe that he wore on very special occasions and was giving it to the son. The best that the father had now belonged to the son. The best that Jesus has belongs to us. And the father said to give him a ring. It was a signet ring that was used for business transactions. Even though the son had squandered one-third of the father's possessions, the father had restored him back all the family riches and had given him the authority to do business transactions. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he put shoes on his feet. No slave wore shoes. It was only a free man that wore shoes, and the son was now a free man, and he was not a slave. And he said, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Verse 23, let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead, he is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It says, the fatted calf. The particular fatted calf. People at that time did not eat meat every day. It was only on special occasions that they ate meat. And it was on very, very special occasions that they ate the fatted calf. A calf that was fatted right from the beginning on grain. And this was one of those occasions when the father decided that this is a very, very special occasion and we are going to kill the fatted calf. That calf was usually so big that it could feed 200 people. And usually for such a big occasion, the entire village would be called in to celebrate. Do you see what the father is doing here? When the village would have shunned and shamed the son, in the midst of them, the father is bringing them all together to celebrate the restoration of his son. That is why in Psalm 23 and verse 5 it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The Pharisees were grumbling that Jesus was hanging out and sitting with sinners. Jesus told them three stories to say that he's not only hanging out and sitting with them, he is searching for them and he is welcoming them home. For the grace of God is bigger than our sin. That is why in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Another translation says, Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. 
What is grace? It is a free, sovereign favor to the undeserving. It's free, and it's sovereign, and we don't deserve it. What is the difference between justice, mercy, and grace? Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. I stayed in Boston for a couple years. We stayed in Chicago for a couple years, and we made that trip from Boston to Chicago uh, several times. In one of those trips, we drove from about 11 a.m. in the morning from Boston. It was a 17-hour drive. And we were still students at that time, my wife and I. We were students at that time, and so we didn't have the money to stay at a hotel. So we decided to just drive through um, and hope to reach uh, Chicago you know, whenever. Um, at about 11 PM, we were driving through Ohio. And I had driven for hours, and I get pulled over by a cop, um, and I get a speeding ticket. Now, the cop could have done one of three things. What he did do was that he gave me a ticket. That is justice. He gave me what I deserve. Instead of that, if he said, you were speeding, here's a ticket, but I'm not going to give it to you. Don't speed anymore. Just drive safely and carefully and slowly and go home. That would be mercy. I'm not getting what I deserve. But instead, if the cop said, here's your ticket, but I'm not going to give it to you, Instead, here's $150 for you to spend at a night in the hotel so that you can be safe and you can go home tomorrow morning. That would be grace. If the father in the story told the son that he is going to let the kezaza ceremony stand so that the son was banished forever from the community, that would be justice. The son got what he deserved. Instead, if the father said, I will not let the kezaza ceremony stand, you can come in my house and work as a slave, you are not getting everything that you deserve, that would be mercy. But instead, if the father says, I will not treat you like a servant, I will not treat you as a banished person, but I will call you into my house and you can have my best robe and you can have the ring and access to my family riches and you can have the shoes on your feet and you will be a son from now on, ladies and gentlemen, that is grace. If God had banished us to outer darkness for the rest of our lives, that would be justice. If God had just left us to rot on earth for the, with, with, with the consequences of the sins that we did, we would not get what we deserve. That would be mercy. But if 2,000 years ago, if Jesus came down on earth and he died for us, and we have redemption through him, and we have the free gift of salvation through him, and we have access to the Father's riches, and we have the glories of heaven and the promise of eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just seen grace. I'm going to invite you to respond to the sermon. If you want to turn, turn to grace. This morning, if there's anybody who wants to respond to the sermon, can stand up or can go to the side here. There'll be people praying for you, and you can respond. If you've never invited Jesus into your life 
and this is the first time you are welcome to stand up or go to the corner and somebody will pray for you. While this next song is being played, if there's anybody else who wants to turn away from a um, character flaw or from a relationship that you're not supposed to be in or from a habit that you've been struggling with, you want to turn away and turn to grace, this is a time. You can respond by standing up through the song and we will pray afterward. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the strength to turn away from those things that have bogged us down and drag us down. Pray that you would give us the strength to come to our senses and turn to you. In Jesus' name.